You're listening to episode 90 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara. He's Alex. Joined by special guest Matthew Trueblood to talk about all things Cubs versus Cardinals, beginning with the one and only Lou Brock. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Chirps, where we actually get to talk about baseball yet again, although this time not while the Cardinals are playing because they played early in the day, one of like 17,000 doubleheaders they have down the stretch, and they played the Minnesota Twins on Tuesday afternoon and evening, and we're able to split that series. So we are recording this post-game and post-game again, and I am joined by Alex, and we have a special guest with us this week. Matthew Trueblood is joining us, and I'm very excited to kind of sit back and listen to some of this conversation, because quite honestly, I wasn't supposed to be here tonight, Uh, but thanks to COVID, I am once again not working when I should have been, so uh, not, not because I have COVID, because an entire volleyball team apparently is in quarantine, so they couldn't play tonight. So um, Alex and Matthew are both here, and we have lots of baseball to talk about. The Cardinals played a lengthy series with the Cubs and now have moved on to uh, to the remainder of their schedule with an off day on Thursday, which seems like such an anomaly. I don't quite know what to do with a day that the Cardinals aren't going to play baseball. But first of all, Matthew, Alex, how are you guys? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm glad Matt's here because, you know, the Cardinals just finished a big series with the Cubs. And he, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a Cubs fan. Uh, I mean, you still identify as such, right, Matt? Yeah, just okay. not right. the way I was before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you also know a lot about the Twins, and the Cardinals uh, just had a played a doubleheader against the Twins. So you, you are a perfect guest to have on today. Yeah, hopefully so. I mean, that's selling me a little hard, but we'll... We'll try and live up to it. I feel as though you know a lot about every team. Like, you might know more about the Texas Rangers than I know about the Cardinals. Is that <laughs> like, I, just from reading your stuff? And I know that's kind of a prerequisite, probably, when you write at a place like Baseball Prospectus. But I feel as though you would be like that anyway. Uh, have you always had an interest, not just in the Cubs, but in like league wide? I mean, somewhat. I think most of us growing up, you know, I maybe was toward the tail end of the uh, collecting baseball cards era where, you know, suddenly everything was too saturated and it got kind of icky as I reached my teens. But I started out collecting tons of baseball cards and that keeps you interested in the whole league. But I was definitely, at the time, I thought I was the guy who knows everything about baseball, the, all of baseball, right? And now I look back and I realize when you're a kid, you you definitely know way more about your team than you know about anything else. So I've been, you know, since reaching college and kind of actually expanding my world, I've been halfway scrambling to to catch up and, you know, be a little more focused on the entire league at once. And and then partially, you know, you just fake it. I mean, the Texas <laughs> Rangers. Yeah, I, I can fake it on the Rangers. But <laughs> okay. I've known you, uh, at least online, for a while now, uh, and I'm curious, was there a moment or a player that you can look back on and kind of say, that that was when I latched onto the Cubs? This is the reason, or that guy is the reason. I mean, obviously, I'm sure geography plays the main role in that, but it also helps to have a, a team or a player to kind of give you that 
push as well. Yeah, I mean, okay, so first of all, this is a very Cubs way to remember being a true, or very Cubs fan way to remember being sort of pulled into the fold. But we had just gotten cable in the spring of 97. Um, and I had sort of gotten the bug when we were down visiting my grandparents and we were watching a spring training game or something. Um, but I turned on the game one day after school, like the second grade, and uh, the Cubs are just wrapping up a, a win in like mid-April. And as they're, you know, the, I think it was a fly ball for the final out and they're doing the high five lineup on the mound. And Harry Carey is talking about how this is the happiest one and 14 team you'll ever see. <laughs> Cause that was the year they started. Oh, and 14. I didn't know they started. Oh, and 14. And to me, the happiest one and 14 team you'll ever see sounded good. Uh, so that was kind of how I got suckered in. I mean, my dad was a Cubs fan anyway. It was, it was going to be destiny, but that I just sort of rode with it. And even though it was kind of the worst season of his, you know, the main body of his career, that was the summer that I went nuts for Sammy Sosa too. Um, we went to the final home game of the year that year. That was my first game at Wrigley. I uh, forced, eschewed chasing Ryan Sandberg's autograph after the game, much to my dad's chagrin and desperately pleaded and ended up getting Sammy's instead. Um, which I gave my dad a hard time for years after that because it looked like I'd gotten the better end of, of that exchange, and, and now he gives me the hard time. And uh, But anyway, um, so yeah, it was it's a typical entanglement with the Cubs. There are a lot of good things, and then you realize that you were falling in love with a loser all along. But it, it was, uh, I think, a good way to come up with the game. I remember that 0-14 or whatever it was start very well because I had a lot of friends who were who were Cubs fans. And I, I remember how much they just dug in and said, well, this just makes me like them more. This makes me, you know, this is this is certainly the team I root for and this is not going to change that. But I, I don't know if it's because of, you know, the whole 1908 thing or kind of embracing the role as lovable losers and certainly the 90s was not a great decade for the Cubs. But I, I feel as though it was always overblown how bad the Cubs were. Uh, you know, they were certainly painful. But it's not like they were the post-Bonds Pirates or anything like that. I mean, they were they had some solid teams that I remember growing up. You know, certainly in the 80s, they you know they won a couple of division titles. Um, and, and maybe it's just because... I most remember them playing the Cardinals and those series always seem very competitive, no matter what each team was doing. And, and certainly I have some very fond memories of when both teams were out of it, but when they were playing each other, it still mattered. And I think that's why I always have really loved this rivalry is because, you know, it's certainly not as, I guess, intense as Red Sox Yankees, but if the Cardinals were to somehow no longer exist, that would be a crushing blow to my fandom. But so would, too, if the Cubs didn't exist, because I, I really linked the two teams together. And part of that is where I grew up, where there was kind of 50-50 split, uh, even in my own household. But I really feel, and I'm biased, but I, I truly feel it's the best rivalry in, in, the, in sports, I will say that. And do you, have, do you have 
the same feelings about the rivalry or did you grow up in a like, ah, these are big games or is it just kind of a, yeah, it's their rival, but you know, I'm not going crazy about it. No. Yeah. It, it was very intense. And I think, um, I grew up in Northeast Wisconsin where it was easier than you might think to find Cubs fans because for a long time people carried the Cubs as a national league team because the Brewers were in the AL it wasn't the same thing. You could get WGN, all of that. But even once the Brewers came over to the National League, there wasn't an intense rivalry between Brewers fans and Cubs fans for several years. That took a long time right. to develop. Um, and my dad's family is from Peoria. My mom's is from Champaign. That's where we lived until I was five years old or something. So um, so I had the the not hatred even like you described it's a very it's not at that level of sheer enmity but that that rivalry with the cardinals was uh in my family blood so yeah it was it was always something that i loved to track you know and it drove me nuts that the cardinals were always coming up with guys and you know uh, Pujols being the most obvious example like we were tearing our hair out trying to figure out what how did this happen how could why does god hate us so much um i was actually thinking back because you know we just saw this five game series over labor day weekend um i was thinking back to when they played a five game series that started on labor day in 2003 Mm -hmm. um that was probably the peak of my cubs childhood because that was you know they there were a bunch of weird things in that series. The Cubs lost one game because of a couple of bad calls, and Moises Alou is you know, trying to actually kill an umpire, I think. Uh, Dusty and Larusa are, are <laughs> cursing at each other from dugout to dugout, you know, and the camera is just flashing back and forth between the two of them like it's a tennis match. Uh, there was a 15 inning game, and Sammy Sosa hit a walk off homer. I mean, uh, that the sheer festival atmosphere even when i'm living 200 miles away of a great cubs cardinal series when both teams are good uh it's it's something that i still haven't you know matched in a lot of ways are there certain players for you when you think about the rivalry and the opponent as far as the cardinals who uh, you know whether it was you mentioned albert pujols or one of the sort of unknowns that comes up and just destroys Cubs pitching in one series or whatever. Are there certain players that you still think of and go, oh man, that guy? Yeah, I mean, uh, in different ways, a bunch of them. You know, like they're, the biggest villain to me was Matt Morris. Um, the big oh, wow. Uh, Interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know. It doesn't, it doesn't actually make sense. But to a Cubs <laughs> fan, trust me, it makes sense. You can find <laughs> any Cubs fan my age, they'll tell you the same thing. They we were convinced he was headhunting at Kerry Wood, I think in that series in 03, um, and throwing at people. And he was just the symbol of whatever was going on between the two th- teams that summer. Um, it, you couldn't stand the fact that I think Skip Schumacher was when I finally kind of threw up my hands. I was like, they can put him anywhere they want to on the diamond, and he just keeps hitting, and he's fielding his position. They slid Alan Craig into second base, and somehow that worked. That's not that's, that had no right to work. Um, but yeah, I, it was that's the thing with cheering for a team is you know when you're in close contact with the Cardinals, it seemed like it was always someone different. Uh, I think the the peskiness of Fernando Vina 
drove us all especially mm -hmm. nuts because he had also been with the Brewers for a while. Um, and to have him, it seemed like every time he turned around, he was coming up with a clutch hit, which he didn't even seem to do against anyone except the Cubs. Um, yeah, it's, it's a long procession of them. Tara, I'm, uh, I, I want to ask you a quick question, kind of the same one you just asked Matt, but I don't know if you do this, Tara, but anytime people start talking about how, you know, we could have drafted Mike Trout, which, which is true, as so could have how many other teams I, I quit. When, when was he drafted? 19th? 20th? 23rd 20th, or 23rd, okay, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the Cardinals certainly aren't the only ones who could have drafted Mike Trout. Whenever, but whenever I feel lousy about that, I, I just remember Albert Pujols and think how many <laughs> teams uh, could have drafted him a bunch of times and did not. And I remember that we have absolutely nothing to ever maybe complain about again. But Tara, who's the Cub player that you just um, that comes to your mind? in terms of what you just asked Matt, because for me, it's Aramis Ramirez. I, I, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I feel like that's, it's a very sort of um, generation specific answer, but man, it just felt like every time it was Aramis Ramirez every time. And it was one of those, those guys that it didn't matter what the scenario was. It didn't matter how well a pitcher had been pitching. As soon as Aramis Ramirez came up with a chance to do something to change the dynamic of the game, he would do it every time so for me it's definitely a Ramos Ramirez in the in terms of somebody that I just sort of dreaded seeing at the plate late in games uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was he was a joy and I obviously the opposite for someone who's cheering specifically against his team <laughs> in that moment but watching Ramirez hit it's kind of like if Yachty had a whole bunch of power is this very <laughs> aggressive approach he could take a walk when that's what had to happen but it was a, a contact-focused approach, but he could also just obliterate a baseball, if that's what the moment called yeah. for. And, Which uh, happened more often than not, it seemed, against the Cardinals. Right. <laughs> well, I remember when I first learned about like baseball references play index, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I can basically look up anything I want to. One of the first things I did was just to kind of confirm what I had always thought, to see if Aramis Ramirez really did crush the Cardinals. And it wasn't in our heads, Tara. He, he did. Uh, <laughs> like, he, he absolutely, absolutely killed us. Um, so it, it was nice to know that my memory was not faulty there, I guess. Uh, but and it, that is another thing with these two teams is it's not just a rivalry, but they share a lot of history together, yeah. both good and bad. I mean, I, I think about when I think about Daryl Kyle, I think about the Cubs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think about Joe Girardi. I think about all the players out on the field at Wrigley. Um, it, in a way, it almost seemed fitting that, you know, we heard about we heard the Lou Brock news. And I want to talk about Lou for a quick second um, in a game against the Cubs. Uh, and. I, I say that because, you know, he famously played for the Cubs. He was signed by Buck O'Neill. Isn't that right, Matt? Buck O'Neill, when Buck O'Neill was a scout for the Cubs? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know if he was officially the signing scout. I know like, okay. with Ernie Banks, he was not officially the signing scout, but he sort of shepherded Ernie to the Cubs. And then he did the same thing with Brock in a different capacity about five years later. Gotcha. Okay. I knew there was a connection there somehow. And, and you know, certainly, uh, you know, everyone knows Brock's history with the Cubs and the Cardinals and the trade and all that. 
but I feel as though there's so many examples like that that sort of link the two franchises. But real quick, just to talk about Lou Brock, because I feel like it would be a shame if we didn't talk about him soon. Um, when I heard that news, the first one of the first things I thought of, and Tara, I don't know if you were watching this game. It was probably a couple years ago, but it was a game that McCarver was doing, and Bob Gibson had joined... Uh, joined them in the booth for an inning or two, kind of like he does from time to time. And so they were kind of like talking about the good old days. And, and Lou Brock came up. And McCarver said two things that uh, stuck out. The thing about McCarver is he certainly has his faults. Um, I, I, I like him a lot, and I have for a while. Uh, one of the things I really like about him is he has an incredible memory. Uh, and so he's really good at kind of taking you back to something that happened in the 60s. Uh, but the two things he said about Lou Brock, uh, the first, he was kind of talking about the trade and when he came over and how no one was that quick to accept him, mostly because of how much they all really liked Ernie Brolio, both as a player, because he was coming off a pretty successful season as a pitcher and, and as a person. Um, but Lou quickly you know, found a home in St. Louis and did so well and McCarver says you know we don't win that world series without him and he's talking about the 64 world series um but he also could have been talking probably about the 1967 world series i think there have been several uh stats that have been shown this week that basically said like this is one of the best world series performers of all time i think i saw something that said he had the fourth highest ops for players with at least 75 played appearances in the World Series, and that was behind Ruth, Gehrig, and Reggie Jackson. So big names there. Uh, but the second thing he said, and I remember this even more, is he said that Lou Brock has never had a bad day. And obviously, I, I never knew Lou Brock. I never met Lou Brock. But any public appearance I saw of him seemed to back that up. And reading all the people's recollections of Lou Brock seemed to back that up as well. And I, I always thought that was a very nice comment that McCarver made about him. Yeah, I always think it's so telling to hear how other people speak of someone. And there's, you know, everybody says nice things when someone passes or, or what there's some reason to celebrate them or whatever. But on any occasion, whether it's just someone in the booth talking about the good old days or a player like Harrison Bader who got to work a little bit with Lou Brock or the comments from fans who had the opportunity to meet him or other announcers or other players, everything that you hear, everything that I've heard, and perhaps there's something floating out there that doesn't fall in line with this, but everything that I've heard about him, both on and off the field, is just these glowing terms of how much he focused on having an impact on the people around him as much as he focused on being a great base dealer. And to have kind of both of those ends of the spectrum of excellence is really special. And I think it's such a tribute to the way that he intentionally set out to live his life. And that's why you hear those conversations. That's why you hear someone say something like he never had a bad day because he was purposeful in the way he went about living his life and seeing the world around him and choosing to kind of be that positive influence on people. And that's, man, that's really special. No, absolutely. And you know, Tom Seaver, I think, died exactly a week ago from today. And Joe Sheehan wrote a really good piece on Seaver in his newsletter and basically talked about how, for a very long time, Seaver was the greatest pitcher who ever lived. Uh, and if you 
I never even really thought about it in that way. But uh, if you look at the stats, you can certainly see why that would be the case. Uh, Lou Brock was not that player. Lou Brock was not the ever at any time the greatest player ever lived. He was not. He was not say Willie Mays or or whoever. But you know, he has such an interesting career that he came over the Cardinals in '64, so he just missed Musial, and he was done in '79. So he really did bridge the gap from Musial to the Whitey Ball era. I mean, and that's pretty, that's, that's a pretty, I don't know, it's just remarkable to me that he played with all those guys, but also played with Keith Hernandez and, and kind of was a mentor to a player like Keith Hernandez. Yeah, it's special. I don't don't have anything. (laughs) No, no, I was just going to say it's, it's special when you see that in the moment, right? You see that, that he played with those players and they all have something to say about him. But I think the, the current crop of players and all of their kind words and thoughts and, you know, Instagram posts or whatever. I mean, Harrison Bader's had something to say. Adam Wainwright had a a lengthy um, acknowledgement of Lou Brock's influence on him. Albert Pujols, as we've mentioned in a different context, did the same thing. So not only did he kind of bridge that gap between legends in St. Louis Cardinals baseball history, but he kept that same connection to the team and to the players and continued that influence even with young guys um you know it's in light of the the whole Cubs Cardinals thing we were talking about uh, you know maybe Cubs fans don't like hearing about that influence that he continued to have on on Cardinals players but I think that that's something that is such a a point of respect from everyone in the league to look at that and, and see how someone continue to have such a positive impact um on on the the youth of the game yeah well and i'll just input that uh, i'm sure there are cubs fans who resent that on some level it's <laughs> it's still a sore you know festering sore for cubs fans of a certain age but a lot of us it's it's just a received pain at this point um this kind of old story it might as well be babe ruth's called shot um <laughs> and there are a lot of things about Brock that even a Cubs fan or maybe even especially a Cubs fan should really appreciate. Um, I know when Ernie Banks passed, Brock was there at the funeral speaking about the bond that he had shared with Ernie and with Billy Williams and with George Altman. Um, Some of the players who ended up making up the core of the decent 1960s Cubs teams, which he could certainly have been a part if he'd been, handled differently, thought of differently. And then two, if the Cubs hadn't been essentially operating under kind of a racial quota system that drove them to make the decision to send a black player out of town. So, um, you know, with our modern eyes, I think we should, we should look and, and blame the people who decided to send Brock away. But he was by all accounts, like you said, you know, uh, it wasn't that Lou Brock was never frustrated. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was frustrated frequently during his time with the Cubs and at other points during his time with the Cardinals, but never really discouraged. Um, mm. And that was something that Banks used to talk about a lot, that he thought Brock was misunderstood in that way. Um, and, and that's what's shown through since the end of his career. I was watching a bunch of clips. You know, MLB put together this uh, film room feature, right? That just, I think it just came out today. Um, and I was going back just looking at listening to old interviews with Brock and seeing some old footage of him. And it it's true that he just really, he had an ability without being remotely Pollyanna, as some players from that era, frankly, are in their attempts to recollect and sort of 
relive the game as they knew it. He's not that way, but he he could still find and express positivity in all of his experiences and what he was looking forward to afterward. Yeah, I I, I thought Steve Goldman's column today, if that was today or yesterday, I'm not sure when that went up, but at Baseball Perspectives kind of really did a good job of capturing how Lou approached the game. And if if anyone out there who hasn't read that yet, I do highly encourage reading that because it was a really good read. I learned a lot of stuff about Lou Brock I, I did not know. And I was also reminded of the fact, and I have to be reminded of this probably once a year, that when he stole 118 bases, he was 35 years old, uh, which is it just seems remarkable uh, to me. But I, you know, I, I think we would be remiss. You know, we have True Blood on. Uh, we we need to talk about the 2020 Cubs. Pick his brain on uh, on the Cubs. Uh, first off, how are you looking at this season differently as you normally would? Because to me, I almost, I almost feel as though I only baseball only has 75% of my attention or the Cardinals only have 75% of my attention as they normally would in a, what we would call a normal season. Are, are, are you able to kind of compartmentalize what's going on with everything else and baseball, or is it kind of clouding your, I don't know if enjoyment's the right word, but just focus on the team. I mean, I go in streaks where I think I'm fully immersed and, you know, it's easier when I'm maybe in writing mode, the stuff I, I do for my, you know, writing stuff is uh, I can just sort of focus on a player's mechanics on the adjustments they're making some approach change, you know, a, a pitch mix difference, that stuff I can still fully engage with because your engagement with that is rational, you know, like it's, it's sort of voluntary to put my mental energy there and all the same data is available to me. There's more video than ever. I can do all of that. Uh, when it comes to emotionally fully engaging with that and, and making myself uh, not just like emotionally available, but actually being willing to push a lot of energy and commitment that way, as opposed to focusing more on my family, more on the world around me and all the, you know, all the stuff that's going on. No, it's definitely not the same. And I, I think if they were playing 162 games and having normal playoffs and all of it under these circumstances, hopefully we would all find it within ourselves to pay a bit less than our full measure of attention. Uh, because that's frankly what's called for in the world right now. Um, but the fact that they're doing a 60-game season with this sort of farce of a playoff structure at the end of it makes it really easy. Right. It's almost Mm -hmm. like they gave us permission. Hey, yeah, we know (laughs) Uh, if if you're trying to give your full a full season's worth of attention to what's going on right here, um, then you're trying too hard. Well, you you mentioned you can kind of still focus in on, uh, you know, certain whether it's mechanics of a or or just a certain play. I, I want to talk about Jason Hayward real quick because I, I have to admit, I've, I've seen very little of Jason Hayward just because I've seen very little of baseball outside of the Cardinals this year. But the numbers are obviously there. And I believe it was his second at-bat in the game on Friday against Flaherty 
where he he really just stuck around in the at bat, and then I think on a two two pitch after fouling a few pitches off, uh, just drove the ball into center field. And I watched that at bat, and I was like, he looks. I don't know if relaxed is the right word. Um, and trust me, I hate, I'm not trying to draw any conclusions based on one at bat or even based on 150 plate appearances or wherever he is. But he, that, so that all said, he looked excellent. He, and he's, and the few times I've seen him this year, he's looked like a different player than obviously when he first joined the Cubs. And he's, he's been pretty solid. I would say the last couple of years, if not, not good even though i don't think a lot of people have noticed but is are we looking are we seeing a bit of a different jason hayward this year or are we silly to even guess what's going on with with the limited numbers we have no i think i mean there are a couple of small but tangible improvements and when you say relaxed i mean he is actually physically more relaxed at the plate than he is when he's not going well uh you know there was a especially in 2016, and it was even there a little bit in 2015 when he was with St. Louis, mm-hmm. but he managed to make it work there. There was this real hunching and sort of uh, the way he gripped the bat and started his, his hand load when he was swinging was very, uh, I guess, counterproductive to generating easy bat speed, which for Jason Hayward, easy bat speed is it's just there. He just has to not get in its way. Um but he's also actually this it's a decent callback to Lou Brock in some ways. There were a lot of people before he found himself, basically during his Cubs career, who were worried that he wasn't uh, working hard enough, wasn't taking it seriously enough, uh, maybe was just happy to be there or something. But Ernie Banks would note that Brock was keeping this exhaustive note notebook of all the pitchers he faced and all the ways they were attacking him and he was constantly watching film of himself and trying to hone every little thing about his swing and sometimes he was overdoing it he was going up too tense and too you know again putting his own mentality in between himself and his talent that's happened to Hayward a little bit during different points of his Cubs tenure but over the last couple of years it had already started to shine through and this year we're just getting the full measure of that it we could speculate on all kinds of things on why that is exactly but i think it's mostly just this is what he's been working his way back to since the kind of career crisis of 2016 and early 2017 um and he is he's further off the plate he is more comfortable i think uh, pulling the ball or going to the opposite field whereas in the past he kind of was choosing one or the other to do at a given time and he's really going with it and he's in such a good zone of understanding how pitchers are coming at him that he is better able to know you know this is where i'm going with this next pitch because that's what they're going to throw me and he's right um it it is a joy to watch when he's doing that though and i think it's something that he's not going to have the massive breakout that cubs fans were hoping for when he signed before 2016 but he could have a long gentle sort of aging curve and be really productive on the back half of this contract, maybe even beyond it, wherever he might be. Uh, and that would be good for all of our, our hearts and good for the Cubs as a team, especially given some of the other things that aren't going right. No, certainly. And, uh, that 
you bring up the aging curve and that's what made him such an interesting and intriguing free agent candidate in the first place. You know, is the fact that he just turned what 31 and he's already in, if you can believe it, in his fifth year of this contract with the Cubs, you know, he's, he was what, was he 26 when he hit free agency? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, in addition to his resume up and up to that point, that was the thing is like, look, this is still a very young guy because he, he came onto the scene at such an early age. And yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think we could be looking at a guy who's going to age very gracefully and could be kind of the exception to the rule that, you know, the back years on a contract usually aren't that pretty on, on long contracts like this. That's what the Cubs hope anyway, especially, I mean, honestly, uh, bizarrely, you know, a year ago at this time, well, let's say two years ago, at this time, everyone was up in arms. How did the Cubs do this to themselves? They've hamstrung themselves with a terrible contract to Hayward, a terrible contract to you, Darvish. They're dragging down this otherwise perfect ball, ball club. And now those two and Ian Happ are trying to just drag the bloodied carcass of this team across the finish <laughs> line of a 60-game season. So, so it, is Ian Happ uh, a, a superstar? Like, what's happening here? He's... He uh, was, was slugging over 600 last I saw. He's obviously killing the Cardinals. Uh, what, what do we have here? Yeah, I mean, Ian Happ is, I'm just going to divorce it very slightly for the moment from the production aspect. Ian Happ is a superstar because Ian Happ just, like off the field and the way he carries himself, this guy is a superstar. He is a phenomenal teammate. <laughs> He is great with the media, uh, finally kind of able to come out of his shell, I think, early in your career when you're a rookie among a bunch of guys who are very accomplished and you're not getting a whole lot of playing time um, and your production is wavering a bit. You don't get to speak up too much. He's speaking up now and he's been, you know, he's, he's created this podcast full of other guys in the Cubs system. Um that shows off his personality in this wonderful way. He's become the Cubs team rep in the players union. Uh, he's really stepped forward in all of those ways, but in terms of production, yeah, he's also just, again, it's, it's a little bit of the Brock thing. Uh, when Brock got to St. Louis, whereas the Cubs had always, you know, they moved him from right field or center field to right field, still trying to feel out what they wanted him to be. They were constantly telling him either bunt or hit the ball to the hole between short and third, like Tony Gwynn. That, they didn't say that back then, but um, because they wanted him to use his speed and on and on. When he got to St. Louis, Johnny Keene just told Brock, hey, go play, go be natural. And that worked because it turned out Lou Brock was a phenomenally talented player who just needed people to stop trying to shape him into one, one small kind of player. And that's kind of what's happened to Hep. The Cubs sent him back to AAA at the end of spring training last season. He spent most of the year there, but there weren't these massive changes he had to make. He just had to get over the idea that some Cubs coach was going to come along and finally give him the message he needed. And instead, he's, he's made himself into the hitter he wants to be. He's very comfortable at the plate. He's a better right-handed hitter than he ever had been before. Although still, you know, he's definitely better from the left side. Um, he's closed up some of the holes in his swing. And some of it is 
he just knows where the holes are and he's not swinging at those pitches anymore. Uh, kind of a Matt Carpenter thing in that respect. Um, and between all of that and the fact that he's a, a doggedly hard worker and he will never be a great center fielder, but he's made himself a serviceable one. Now you got a, a switch hitter with a ton of power, great plate discipline, which has always kind of been there. It was just a matter of making it the right kind of plate, you know, great plate discipline, selectively aggressive instead of passive. Um, the switches are all flipped in the right, you know, into the on position and he's not going to do this. He's not going to have an 1100 OPS forever, but he is a star and he's going to stay a star for the foreseeable future. Tara, did you ever cover Hap? Did, did you ever do Iowa Cubs games? I, I, I know. I did not. Okay. I wasn't sure if you were ever, ever cross paths with him, but his time at, Iowa was strange too because it was a very short stint in 2017 before he got called up, pressed into duty because of injury. Then he wasn't back until he was back for this long period last year um, after he'd sort of established himself in the majors and then taken a giant step backward because, again, they weren't using him in it with any kind of regularity. Okay. That, okay. I think it was his stint last year back in Iowa that made me forget that he actually came up in 2017 and not 2018. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's right. Real quick on, uh, do you have any early returns on David Ross? Like, I know when, for instance, when Matheny was hired, or I, I could probably say the same thing about Brad Osmus, um, very early, very early, uh, there were rumblings of like, wait a second, what, what is this guy doing? <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I'm not loving what I'm seeing. I mean, certainly not things that were unfixable, although whether they were ever fixed is uh, worth being debated. But I haven't heard really anything like that about David Ross. But again, I haven't been, been necessarily paying as much attention as I should. Uh, any comments, concerns? Uh, what, with David Ross, he seems to be doing a fine job to my very untrained eye. Yeah, I, this is one of those years where it's hard to evaluate anyone. I think it's probably especially hard to evaluate a manager because there are things you'd want to do as a manager, things you'd want to cultivate, things you'd want to stamp out that you just can't do any of that because of what's happening this season and what's not happening. You know, the the limited lives of your players outside the ballpark and the limited sample of the season and all of that. Um, I know Cubs fans wish he, he were being a bit more responsive to some of the guys who have been struggling a lot lately, either moving them down in the order or platooning them more. But the Cubs are an organization that hands a little bit more of that down from the front office than most people might realize at this point. Uh, most organizations are like that. We should, we should know. Like, <laughs> it's not that managers don't still have control of the lineup card, but they maybe have some editing power after a first draft is handed to them, that kind of thing. Um, Ross, he's, he will trust his starters a ton. So far, he trusts his starters way more than any manager I've seen in the last five or six years. It's a slow, slow hook. But also, like some of that is because it's John Lester and we know those two's relationship and I'm sure he wants to trust Lester and, and let him work out of anything he can. Um, 
And I don't mind that, although it might not be statistically sound. But the other part is the Cubs' bullpen is such a wreck, and the starting rotation's been going pretty well. So I think he would much rather just sort of err on the side of, of letting a starter stay in a bit longer this year. So if next season they have a different-looking bullpen and a different-looking starting rotation, and he's making the same choices, that'll be really interesting. That'll set him apart in a significant way from other skippers around the game. Um, but it's hard to know whether that's real or not yet. And then on the managing people side, that was the part that there was really never any question about David Ross. I know, um, I know, I know, I know that for Cardinals fans, it's sort of eye roll inducing this whole, the whole cult around him that bubbled up in those couple of years with the Cubs. But it actually been a cult around him throughout the game that had been slowly building over the half decade before that too matt matt we're just mad that the cubs are good <laughs> that's all it was I, yeah but i also like i get it i know there are people who are like god that curtain call at the end of the regular season game for the backup catcher yeah i remember that one. and i do get it but he really like he really was that transcendent of a teammate uh, and not just during his time with the Cubs, but the several years before that in Atlanta and in Boston. And so everyone trusts him to manage the people side. He's not too buddy-buddy. He's actually kind of a red ass in the clubhouse in a good, good way. Um, but we also don't really get to see how well that translates. As much as we trust that it will, this season is more about, okay, keep everybody doing the the like basic public health guidelines things that we've laid out here and as long as you're doing that you're you're essentially doing your job because in 60 games under such strange circumstances you don't get to create a culture that lets you lap the league the way that they might eventually envision or dream on him doing since we're talking about a catcher or a former catcher i guess i have to bring this up Tara and, and Matt, did you see Matt Weeders at bat earlier today? <laughs> yes. Do you know which one? Okay. 19 you, you pitches, know what I'm right? About? 19 <laughs> yeah. pitches. Yeah. Did you hear about this, Matt? Yep. Okay. Um, for those listening, uh, Matt Weeders, uh, was that the third or fourth inning? Uh, well, whatever. He had a 19 pitch at bat. Uh, shoot, I've already forgot who the pitcher was. Tara, can you help Caleb me? Caleb bar. Ah, there you, there you Okay. I sh- should have known Matt would come through on that. <laughs> so 19 pitches, too shy of Brandon Belt's record of a 21 pitch at bat. And uh, it ended with a deep uh, fly ball to center field. Um, so the ending wasn't really much to write about. But I will say this. Watching that at bat, I would say from about the 11th pitch on, is the most I have missed having real fans in a stadium <laughs> all year. Uh, because that's one of those moments where the fans really, you know, like obviously a walk off hit or a home run, you know, of, of course, fans are going to be excited and you can kind of, I, I don't know, those, the, the fan reaction at that point is predictable. But when one of those at bats is grinding on, I really enjoy watching the fans interact with the game. And I, I really missed it during that at bat. That well, was just such a wild thing to see. And not only enjoying it from the perspective of just the energy building in the stadium, 
But that's the kind of moment in a game where I wonder how much not having fans actually impacts the result. Because if you have a stadium going crazy, the pressure is different on the pitcher. And if you have, you know, that that energy in the building, I know there's there's sound in the venue and all that, but it's not the same as if there are actual human beings in the crowd making the the crowd noise as opposed to just a soundtrack of sorts. Um, so there, those are the kinds of moments where I find myself wondering, we talk about how there maybe isn't home field advantage to the same extent as there is in a season where there are fans in the stands. And it's that kind of play, that kind of moment where I wonder if it would have been part of changing the result as far as whether or not the, the pitcher uh, felt the pressure and, and threw a, a less... A, a lower caliber pitch or missed his spot just a little bit more or Weeders kind of felt the moment and you know all of that's intangible stuff that you can't actually analyze but I do find myself wondering about plays like that this year sure yeah and just that um <laughs> Theobar's a fascinating pitcher in his own right he has twice ended up in the independent leagues and then sort of been pulled back from the brink of giving up baseball um but the difference in just the way it would have uh the moment might have forced him to just throw a ball some place in that sequence yeah whereas you know i mean it was bases loaded uh they'd already walked in one run and was it one walk rbi walk and one rbi hit by pitch in the inning <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh so it was also not one of, you know, it's not like a 18, 19, 20 pitch at bat that sneaks up on you either. This was a moment where the bases were already loaded. It was already a big inning. It was the Cardinals' chance to throw a haymaker of a knockout punch to the Twins in the game. And I'm sure it would have been much harder for Theobar to keep pumping in strikes if the crowd were already pretty revved up from all those runs having scored and now just crying out for blood in a way, <laughs> as opposed to piped-in crowd noise. It just doesn't have anything like the same effect on you. I- I'm guessing he was like, I have one task, keep getting the ball over the plate. And that made it a lot easier to do that. Yeah, Sure. Sarah, before, I think before we wrap it up, I think the other big Cardinals news of the day, I feel as though we should talk about the Cardinals a little bit since <laughs> we fancy ourselves a Cardinals podcast. But do you have... Any thoughts on Dylan Carlson being sent to Springfield to work on his game? Um, I, I'm, I've been struggling to have a what I think is a good opinion on it because <laughs> I, I really don't know. Uh, I saw Schilt gave a quote today basically saying, like, look, pitchers were really attacking him more than they were any other uh, – you know, more than anyone else on our roster. So we just thought it was a good – which one speaks highly of him, but we also thought it was good to, uh, you know, get him somewhere and get his head straight and figure some things out. Uh, I don't really know what that quote means, um, but it, it did seem like he was having some bad luck. It did seem like he was uh, at times. Um, you know, you know what? It, a few times reminded me of. I went to Bryce Harper. 2012, I went to a Nats-Yankees game. I remember it well because I ended up going 14 innings. Um, but this was Bryce Harper's rookie year when he just totally played with his hair on fire. And 
Andy Pettit was actually pitching for the Yankees and was just throwing him junk all game. And Harper was swinging that huge swing at each pitch and coming nowhere near the ball. Um, and, you know, Carlson isn't quite like that. Carlson, Carlson isn't like swinging, you know, you know, through, through every pitch quite like Harper was that day. But I do feel like I've seen some games where pitchers are like, all right, I can just throw some off-speed junk at this guy and he's not going to hit it. Yeah, you know, I do have thoughts. I don't know that they're particularly organized or helpful, but uh, when did that ever stop us, right? <laughs> um, so I guess my, my initial response to that idea from Mike Schilt that, you know, he's had a rough go of it, so we need to let him clear his head is twofold. One, okay, clearing his head is fine and probably good, but facing not even like minor league pitching at the highest level, but just the other pitchers who also happen to be at the satellite camp who haven't been recalled to the major league roster at this point. I don't know that that's really going to help him figure out how to not be so baffled by major league pitching. So there, it's kind of a twofold thing, right? Where you g- give him a chance to take a step back, face some live pitching where the results aren't so dramatically pressure packed and then give him just that opportunity to get in some good swings, have some good at-bats, find his comfort zone again, and zero in on what it is that he can do to improve. The flip side of that, though, is what we've said about Dylan Carlson for about a season now, is that minor league competition isn't necessarily helping him at this point. So I'm a little conflicted about it in that regard, just because I think he's going to be fine eventually, but because this season is such a, a, a weird, you know, mashup of things that shouldn't be happening all happening at the same time, there's not a great opportunity to just let him go out there and feel like his missed opportunities with the bases loaded or with runners in scoring position or whatever it is that seems to find him every game that it's impossible to think that those aren't going to weigh on him a little more in this season than they would have in just a normal 162 game season where he had the space to work that out. So like I said, I don't know that those are the most organized thoughts. I understand giving him a little bit of space to just take a breath and find some level of success just in live at bats that then maybe he can come back with a new focus or a new ability to kind of pinpoint what it is that pitchers are doing to him at the major league level. But at some point he's still going to have to face those same pitchers who clearly have a plan of attack on him that's working at this point. So I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, other part of that conversation is the other outfielders for the Cardinals this season not being very effective, especially with Dexter Fowler out right now after he was playing very well. No one's really stepping up and kind of taking hold of one of those outfield spots. And I think the assumption was Dylan Carlson would do that. And not only has he not done that, but there's really no differentiator between the struggling outfielders right now. Um, so I I guess that means the opportunity will still be there if and when he comes back to the major league roster, but you know, there's, there's not a lot for him to kind of take away from what he was doing at the major league level that uh, maybe he can work on in the particular setting of this satellite camp, as opposed to uh, actual games and major league pitching. (laughs) No, I, I think your point about the fact that, 
this is a weird season and there's maybe a greater sense of urgency than there normally would be uh, rings rings true. I'm curious what they how they would have handled him during a 162 game season, but you know, whatever. Well, I guess we will never know the answer to <laughs> to that question. Uh, Matt, do you do you have Dylan Carlson thoughts? Um, I mean. I, I never know how you're supposed to handle guys like this. I don't think there are necessarily right or wrong answers staring at you in the face. Right. Well, when were the when was the last time that there were clear right and wrong answers in the Cardinals outfield? This is <laughs> the pro. I mean, it's a decade, right? Of yeah. this, where it's like we have six, maybe seven guys who seem like credible big league outfielders. But at any given time, only two of them are playing like it. So how do you give enough time for the other four or five to figure it out? Um, or for you to figure out which ones are going to figure it out? <laughs> um, I think Carlson, he's such a, an obvious prospect. Like, it's it's real, and it's not no amount of failure this year could have been like, okay, well, we were wrong about Dylan Carlson, which is part of the problem, because you also can't do that with Tyler O'Neill, well, maybe you can by now, but uh, you definitely can't with Lane Thomas. You know, apparently you can't with Harrison Bader quite yet. Um, to me, what's interesting is, and I didn't get to watch Carlson enough to know exactly which thing he's struggling with, or if it's sort of a multiple, multiple fronts kind of struggle. But you know, you hear guys, uh, big leaguers, who came out of summer camp and said. Yeah, that was a terrible atmosphere for working on pitch recognition. And that showed up over the first couple of weeks of the big league season in the stats, like, league-wide. And you hear teams talking about player development at the alternate site and saying, yeah, none of our flamethrowing pitchers want to come inside against our, you know, top prospect hitters the way they would against someone else's because they don't want to accidentally hit anybody. So it's a whole different environment. And it's not really an optimal developmental setting either. Yeah. Um, so sending him back is, it feels, and I, you know, the Cardinals could feel like some of that is not true of them. You know, they do things a little differently, maybe developmentally than a lot of other organizations, but it feels like them sending him back is not so much, well, let's do the best thing for him developmentally as, I don't think he can help us right now. We need to make more room for the people who can mm. uh, and tempt Schilt less to pull those guys out of the lineup. So that could that could turn around, you know, or it, it could a need could develop for him again. Um, but it, it sure feels like they're kind of going, uh, we're going to have to wait till 2021 for Dylan Carlson to have a real impact. And although it, we couldn't really have set any expectations for him in this season because of what this season is and where he was in his developmental stages when it began. Uh, it's got to be a slight disappointment, not in Carlson, but just in the way things broke that he wasn't able to help them much this year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's fascinating. I've never actually thought about it, but you are absolutely 100% right about the outfield situation. I feel like Matt Holliday is the last true rock we've had in the outfield. Uh, 
Maybe that's not entirely true, but it sure feels that way. You know, with when we think about the Gritchicks and all the other people who have passed through. Uh, Listen, a, a do not of, forget about Peter Borges. <laughs> I, I, I pretty much did. Uh, remember how happy we were on the day of that trade? Ugh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That didn't wow. I remember how angry I was on the day of that trade. What? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, Tara, do you have anything else to add before we move on to the chirp of the week? No, I think that's uh, that's plenty for people to uh, digest this week as we figure out how to manage one day off and then, you know, like 17 doubleheaders in the next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, this is about to, we're about to get very busy, it sounds like. Well, I I said to, uh, I forget who I was talking to where I said, uh, it's nice having guests on because they always, uh, I always make them do the chirp of the week and this is uh this week is no exception so matt you have agreed to do the chirp of the week what what do you have for us so this is it may end up being a little disorganized but i'm gonna try uh it's about lubrock and kind of looping back to some of the things we already talked about about him but i wanted to bring something that i've always wrestled with when it came to him into focus um you mentioned earlier that Brock is not like a um, a Willie Mays. He's not, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. He was not the equivalent of Tom Seaver, um, but he was a Hall of Famer. And it's always been hard to square, especially since you know we've come into the era of war. We know the imperfections of that stat, but it's supposed to do a pretty good job with pretty much everyone, and it pretty much does. Only when it comes to Lou Brock you just look at his war numbers and you're like, these aren't, these aren't right. These don't square with the impact that Lou Brock seemed to have with the guy who just, I mean, lit up the world series at every single opportunity. The guy who set the record for stolen bases at a time when stolen bases were so highly valued. And what I often found myself trying to get through is this idea that Lou Brock is a tough hitter, to compare to anyone he's a tough hitter to contextualize um because he played in a low offense era in a very an era in which offense didn't look anything like offense looks now i mean it's almost a mirror image of what offense is like now um so i went to fan graphs where they have uh the plus stats where they not only you know, your overall run production adjusted for league and park, and you spit out one number for how valuable this guy was. But now at Fangraphs, they will also say, over the course of his career, what was your plus number? You know, 100 being league average, higher being more, lower being less, for like their strikeout percentage, for their walk percentage, these key things to a batter's profile. And I looked at Brock's, And I'm just going to lead by giving you these numbers. Brock's career strikeout uh, percentage plus was 115. So he struck out 15% more than a league average hitter. His career walk percentage plus was 79. Did not walk much. His career isolated power plus was 94, slightly below average power. His career Babbitt plus was 119 which is one of the highest marks ever. There have been like 1,700 players since 
1,900 with at least 3,000 plate appearances, and Brock's one of the top dozen in that last number. So his, his excellent skill was when he put the ball in play, he generated a lot of hits. And that's not super surprising for a guy with a ton of speed. But Brock's hits didn't all come because of his speed. In fact, I think what these numbers tend to show is that more of them that we believe might have come from a sort of ahead of the curve willingness to trade contact for hitting the ball with authority. Um, and Brock has said this, you know, again, I was watching old interviews of him the last couple of days and he, in recent years, when people had interviewed him and said, what do you think your career might look like now in the age of launch angle in the age of analytics? He said, yeah, I probably would have, you know, not given up on hitting the long ball hit for more power. And that wasn't all talk. I mean, Brock was famously just shredded, although not a huge guy. He was very, very strong. And he thought of stealing bases as an act of power. You know, that pop-up slide was not something he engineered just so that he could get onto the next base quickly. It, it also brought him into second base with a ton of force. He, he, when talking about the mechanics of stealing a base, used to talk about the way you engage your back foot with the ground and then disengage it to just fire yourself with as much force as possible off towards second base. Uh, this is how Lou Brock conceptualized baseball. He was a power guy, even though he, he knew he couldn't be strictly a power hitter. So I tried to find anyone who would compare in all four of those key dimensions, strikeout rate, walk rate, uh, power, and Babbitt to Brock. And I mean, we can just say it plainly right here. There's really no one. Um, for anybody with a similarly high Babbitt plus, like almost everyone either has a, an isolated power plus that's well over a hundred or one that's under, you know, it's like low eighties or lower. So you had the slap hitters, the wizards who never struck out, you know, the Tony Gwynn's Tony Gwynn is the archetype of it really who could always put the bat on the ball and often find holes, but traded virtually all their power for the ability to do so. Um, Brock didn't do that. You know, he didn't have quite league average power, but much better than most guys who were like him. Um, really, the only guy who is super comparable to him in that way was Phil Bradley. I don't know how well you guys remember Phil Bradley. He was an underrated outfielder during his time uh, partially because sabermetrics hadn't come in full force yet but uh he was in the 80s mostly for the mariners a, a good player but not a player on lou brock's level obviously um but bradley was also a guy who both struck out and walked considerably more than a league average hitter and that's not what brock did um, when you look for guys who struck out and walked at similar rates to Brock, you get like modern comps for that are Corey Hart, Nicholas Castellanos. Um, guys who are more contemporary to him were like the, the old Frank Thomas, the pirate slugger Frank Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, Terry Kennedy, the catcher from, well, it started out with the Cardinals very briefly, right? Um, but nobody did all four of these things remotely like Brock. It's not, you can't find three of the four facets in which someone is really similar to him. Um, 
And I think what it highlights is at a time when most guys who were batting at the top of the order put pressure on themselves to trade power for contact, to get the ball in play, even if they weren't bunting and just trying to move people over, they were thinking of themselves as table setters. Brock was doing that to some extent. He wasn't generating, he wasn't tapping into all of the power of which he was capable, but he was saying, my job is still to go up there, look for a pitch I can hit hard, and then hit it hard. And that's why, you know, he only hit 149 career homers, but he had over 750 career extra base hits, which hardly anyone with his, you know, with a similar amount of speed to him has ever done. Um, at that, in that way, he really is only comparable to Ricky Henderson and Ty Cobb. Now, obviously, those guys did things very well that Brock didn't necessarily do well. Um, but it just underscores the fact that our modern numbers can't fully understand Brock because Brock wasn't, he was in a certain sense playing to numbers, but not the numbers we know now. He understood, he was told by people, by Johnny Keene in a big meeting in the middle of 1964 that sparked the team. We need someone to go steal bases like Maury Wills. So he did. He went out and he just stole bases like Maury Wills until he finally passed Maury Wills. And he was stealing bases like no one ever had. Um, and he went out there and he attacked the baseball even at the top of the lineup because they said, go do that. Um, but I don't know that he was exactly the optimal version of himself from a modern analytical standpoint yet he was almost definitely the optimal version of himself for the time and place where he played. And I think that's the lesson is that some guys, we look back and we think, oh, they're so underrated. They did so many things that weren't fully appreciated at the time. But those things were also easier to do because no one was really trying that hard to stop you from walking a lot back then. Um, some things like that. Everything Lou Brock did well teams were trying desperately to stop him from doing and it still didn't work because he just in a strange way for a speed guy overpowered them that was great thank you uh i, I hesitate to make this comment because i i never want to sound like although I, I probably always do sound like this guy like a uh, you know things used to be better you know when they played like this guy but i i think one of the things that is sort of taken away from us when we have such detailed instruction and, and analytics at such an early time. And I'll say the same thing at like about a sport like basketball when players are like kind of set through the AAU, like uh, I guess almost like uh, uh, factory line. And, you know, they all learn how to shoot a jump shot the correct way instead of teaching themselves how to do it. Um, you kind of lose the character. Uh, when every player kind of starts looking the same and every every player kind of starts trying to do the same things, you kind of lose some quirkiness and characters that that may have, you know, I'm trying to think of some guys who maybe from the 80s or 70s or when Brock played who, who were good then who maybe wouldn't have even had a chance today. Um, and believe me, the, the people playing baseball today are better than any other time in history. Uh, but I do sometimes wonder if we kind of don't have quite the character of the game that we used to have. Um, and, and that's not an insult to the game we're currently watching, which is still an awesome and wonderful game. Uh, but yeah, I think that is something to, to think about. And I think Brock is a, is a prime example of that. 
sort of the product of all the analysis and all the different kinds of analysis that generate this idea of what the the best option is or the best kind of player is that maybe takes away from that figuring it out individually like you're you're talking and um yeah i think it that lends itself to a very different a different game in the sense of you know how players are developed and how they're taught to be the most successful version of themselves is um you know is certainly the priority as opposed to kind of filling in the spot <laughs> like maybe Brock did a little bit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Matt. We appreciate, uh, as always, you are a great support of the show, and we always enjoy hearing your thoughts and your comments on um, mostly Alex doing the Chirp of the Week, because I never do it unless I have to. Um, <laughs> but we appreciate the uh, the change of pace, having someone else come in and do that for us this week, and um, just for hanging out with us tonight. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you guys for letting me crash it. I am a listener whenever I am not on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate that as well. If this is your first time listening to the show, make sure that you check out all the other podcast content from Birds on the Black. You can subscribe or follow or whatever it is you do where you listen to podcasts most. Of course, you can follow Birds on the Black on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Tara Wellman. You can follow Alex on Twitter at AlexCard79. You can follow Matt on Twitter. Uh, Matt, remind me what your Twitter is because I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, at M-A Trueblood. There you go. And you can, you can find... Also, I would also say you, you should subscribe to Matt's uh, newsletter, Penning Bull, as well. I am a subscriber. And I enjoy it. Yes, do that as well all the things because you need more baseball content in your life that is the one thing there's not going to be enough of because there's only 60 games or 58 or whatever it is if you're the cardinals so enjoy the off day on thursday or on wednesday rather and the, the double header then coming up against the tigers will be the next time the cardinals play and then it's off to the races and there's no rest for the weary until the season wraps up at some point after that so Thank you for tuning in, for listening, for supporting, for enjoying Cardinals baseball and Cubs rivalries and all of the other things with us. For Alex and for Matt, I'm Tara. We'll talk to you next time.